I'm curious if we have a volunteer who would be willing to open up in prayer this morning. And if not, I will volunteer. Howard made it easy for me. I didn't even have to volunteer him. Amen. All right, we have finished the chapter, number nine, on free will. And I'll, uh, before we move on to chapter 10 here, I'll just leave it open for any loose ends, any discussion that didn't get resolved, anything that we want to discuss yet on chapter nine, or are we ready to move on to chapter 10 on the topic of free will? No? Okay. Howard has been in my Sunday school class from before here for many years, and we always like to joke, it was kind of a basketball tactic, he'd always have this buzzer beater, he'd throw a three-pointer right, right at the end of class, he'd bring up an extremely complex topic, but he, I guess he's waiting till the end of class. No, free will is, is a, it's an important thing. Um, to understand different views of free will, different natures of what we mean when we talk about free will. And this is especially important because sometimes, or very often, uh, those of us who hold to the theology of the Reformation get accused of not believing in free will. And that is just simply not the case. We don't believe in libertarian free will, but we do believe that man is always choosing all the time. We just say he's choosing what he wants. He's choosing according to his nature. Uh, and so that is how we understand free will uh, as opposed to uh, the Arminian understanding, which is to say man can choose literally anything. Um, but we do not deny free will in a biblically defined sense. And uh, I meant, oh yeah, go ahead, Hugh. Right, okay, so Hugh is asking, how do we understand this in light of uh, Genesis 4, and we'll, uh, verse 7, yeah, chapter 4, verse 7, uh, which is God speaking to Cain, says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Uh, and I would say we are actually, in the New Testament, commanded the same thing, right, to, to flee the devil, to flee sin. Um, and unbelievers are commanded to do that just as you and me are, right? Um, in James it says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. So do, do passages like that invalidate what we've just been saying? And I would say, no, they don't. What we've studied gives us an understanding of why, given these options, people choose what they do. 
right? So God always lays out in every covenant, including in the new covenant, God lays out a vision for blessing and a vision for curses, largely dependent on how we respond to him, right? So that is true. And all Christians of every stripe should say, here's the way of blessing, here's the way of cursing. Uh, the difference in understanding is why did this guy choose the path of blessing and why did this guy choose the path of cursing? But God lays out two different visions. There's this reaping and sowing principle all through scripture. It doesn't end in Genesis 4. It's, it's all the way. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Um, that's true. The next question is why did Hugh draw near to God and Hugh's friend did not? That's the question we're looking at when we are discussing free will. But there's always two visions. There's always two visions of reality. Blessing, cursing, Christ, chaos, however you want to set up that dichotomy. Ultimately, heaven and hell. Uh, and so we, had, we would have no problem with Joshua saying, choose this day whom you're going to serve. Choose. Me and my house, we're going to follow the Lord. Well, why? Well, because God's spirit was already prior at work in Joshua and his household. That's why they chose the path of blessing. And if God's not at work, they, they can understand the words, they can understand the contrasting visions, but they'll choose the one that they, that they want. So this kind of goes a layer beneath that yet, I would say. Does that, does that help you? Yeah, okay, Vern. And that's a great point, because in verse 8, Cain can understand these words, right? Cain, as an unregenerate person, can understand the two visions God's laying out for him. So, naturally, I'm going to go kill my brother out of envy. That, sure it is. Who desired to kill his brother? Sure, yeah, yeah. Verse 7, he gave him a chance. Yeah, I know. And this is what Howard's smirk was about. Because I know, I've, me and Howard have gone around the bush enough times, I know exactly this is what's in Howard's head. It is okay to think that way. Yeah. Um, and we, I'm not a believer in punting on the first down. Let's try Let's get as far as we can, but eventually all of our brains weigh three pounds, and we can only get so far. We're not going to score a touchdown on every play. It's okay to say, I, I get it, I know the Bible's saying this, I can't quite connect it in my head. Part of the reason, I think it doesn't bother me at all at this point, is one, I've, maybe over 15 years I'm just used to getting, being okay with it. But I do think as you, as you grow into this, I do think the dots do connect. Because man, God holds us accountable for what's in our heart. And by nature, what's in our heart after the fall is wickedness. So there's no problem with God uh, holding us accountable for our actions. None whatsoever. Because it's really me that hates him. It's really me 
looking at pornography. It's really me telling lies. It's me. So there is, if God does not give me grace, there is no problem whatsoever with me being accountable for the things that are really in me. I think, to a degree at least, a lot of the problem here is the objection isn't that God would hold us accountable for our nature and our actions. That may be part of it, but I think for a lot of people, the biggest stumbling block is that God gives mercy to some and not all. I think that's what we really have a problem with. And then if God pardons some, we say, well, that's not fair that he holds these people accountable for their sin. But Cain still has a brain, even as a fallen man, born in the fall. So to Marina's point, verse 7, Cain can understand those words. Do this and you'll be blessed. Do this and you'll be damned. Okay? And he's acting according to his nature to say, I want to be damned. Because frankly, I'm not taking God very seriously anyway, and I just want to do what I want to do, so I'm just going to, in the words of Fleetwood Mac, go my own way. Right? Um, But that's not the right thing to do. Another way to look at this, this was helpful. For me, let's say you've got ten men on death row. Ten mass murderers on death row. Okay? And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, all ten of them are actually guilty. Okay, so we're not saying there's potential innocence here. We know with absolute certainty all ten of them are murderers who deserve to be on death row. Okay, so let's stop there. Out of those ten, how many deserve to be executed? Ten. If the governor exercises his prerogative to pardon three of them, and he pardons them, not because they're innocent, but because he just has chosen to be merciful to three of them, the seven that are left on death row, has any injustice been done to them? None. Okay? So, these receive justice. These receive mercy. Not one of them receives injustice. Okay? See that? Nobody gets injustice. The fact that some are pardoned, it does not mean that these others don't deserve what's coming to them. They do deserve it. But we tend to think if somebody is shown mercy, our mind goes to, well, that's not fair because it's not straight across the board for everybody. Okay? Uh, but if we got straight across the board justice, we wouldn't want that. Right? We, we don't want that. So God's mercy is, is free to send it where, uh, where he wishes. But we're always making choices. And people who are left in their natural state... Um, do have a chance in the sense that they are willfully, knowingly rebelling against what's right. right? Unbelievers know that lying is wrong, and they just they don't care. Right? Uh, they just do what they want. And so there's no, in my mind, there's no contradiction between God holding us accountable, uh, even if he doesn't give special saving grace to that person. They're still accountable, because it's still them choosing and doing. It's still their nature uh, coming through in their actions. More on that.
Yeah, the only thing I would caution people, don't punt it on the first down. Don't go to mystery on the first down. Read your Bible. Pray for understanding. Read it hard and read it in such a way that these verses never cancel out these verses. If you're stuck with something on both sides, we have to affirm all the verses. And if we can't perfectly put it together, we're not going to drop half the verses just so it works easier in our head. We, we want to be people of the word. No, and don't be discouraged. Yeah, yeah don't be discouraged. Yeah, just trust your Bible. Yeah, there was another hand here. Lisa? Amen. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I've thought about something you said a few weeks ago in class here, so I trust this is okay if I say this out loud here, coming from a hyper-Calvinistic background, right, where on paper we'd say the same things, but culturally there's a very different expectation, right, where some will look at this and say, we're so broken, we're so fallen in our nature that we can't choose God it must be a work of God and then if we see that the hyper Calvinist said well that's not possible because it has to be from God so God can't do that because it must be from God <laughs> right so so I'm never going to believe it if if someone claims that this happened to them I'm not going to believe it whereas what we should say is yes only God can do this and isn't it wonderful that he keeps doing it over and over and over and over right it must be from God, but are we expecting that God actually will <laughs> do this, right? Yeah. And so it, the, the point of this isn't just to play a logic game in our head. The point of this is to be humbled enough and to see that grace is truly amazing. God did it start to finish for me, right? There's, there's nothing I contribute to my salvation other than the sin that made it necessary. That's the only thing I come with. Anything more, Howard? Could Cain have not killed his brother? In terms, well, there's, depending on how we're looking at that, from the decree of God, it couldn't have gone otherwise. Could he have, in his... In his metric that he's thinking through, did he have the option of choosing differently? Well, yeah, of course he did. It's right. Well, what we're what? Yeah, <laughs> not exactly a buzzer beater. <laughs> Yeah, and that's where our limited understanding comes, because we're looking at the same question on two different planes, right? We're looking at it on two different planes, on the plane of our experience, how we work through questions, and we're also looking at it on the plane of God's decree, which isn't changeable. So from the eternal decree of God, could it have gone differently? No. 
in terms of when we are at the moment of decision, can we really understand the different options and it's really us choosing yes. And we have a word for that in theology. And here's the, the downside and the upside. The good news is we have a word for this. The bad news is that doesn't mean we know what, how it works, right? Uh, prime example, let's move it out of theology, the word energy. Everyone knows what energy is, right? Okay, not one of you can define it for me. Just because we have a word for something doesn't mean we know how it works. Okay? Time would be similar. Everyone knows what time is until they're asked to define it. Okay? We have a word for this. It's called concurrence, which just means that God, in the same action, God and man are both willing for the same action to happen, but with different goals. Right? One example, you can turn to Genesis 50. I think we've looked at this one before. Genesis 50, verse 20. So we've come up with the cool word concurrence. You'll see it in action. That doesn't mean we understand how it works. Okay, so Genesis 50, 20. The context here is uh, Joseph's reunification with his brothers. Okay, when they come for bread to Egypt. And let's... um, And his brothers, when they see who he is and that he's in a position of power, naturally they're scared of him, right? They sold him into slavery. He's in a place of power now. He can get his revenge on us. And then in verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So let's look at this text. Did the brothers mean for Joseph to get sold into slavery? Did God mean for Joseph to get sold into slavery? Yes. Were they willing the same reasoning behind it? No. What were Joseph's brothers thinking? Get rid of him. We hate him. What's God thinking? I need him in Egypt because his people are going to experience such a famine that they're going to need someone friendly to them when they come for food in a few years from now. Okay? Very different purposes, but the same event is meant by all of them. So you look at a text like this and you say, could Joseph's brothers have chosen differently? And I think if we say in terms of God's purposes this is the way God wrote the story, they're going to choose what they, what they do in fact choose, but that doesn't mean they're not thinking about it. It doesn't mean they're robotic at the moment of decision. Right? They're doing what they want. They meant for this to happen for a purpose contrary to God's purpose, but in the same action, and that's what concurrence is, is that God and man will the same event to happen even if it's sometimes for different purposes. So somehow our wills are congruent at that moment of decision. How? The best I can do is Proverbs 21.1. The Lord's, you know, the king's heart is a stream of water in the Lord's hand. He turns it wherever he wills. He could have restrained the brothers from selling Joseph into slavery. Another example from Genesis here, how this works. I think Genesis 20, go there. This is why you should read your... Old Testament because it's theology in story form. Genesis 20, verse 
which for some of us that helps. Okay, so um, Abram has apparently a particularly attractive wife. Okay, and he goes into a strange country and I guess someone other than Abram notices that there's a very attractive woman with him and he wants her. Okay, and he takes her. And Abram kind of tells a partial lie about who she is. Okay, also a partial truth about who she is. And then, in the morning, Abimelech finds out that this is someone's wife. And he could have been in deep trouble. And what does it say in verse 4? Genesis 20, verse 4. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done things in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Hold that thought for a minute. Fast forward a few hundred years. There's another king who happens to notice that somebody else's wife is particularly beautiful, and he wants her. And he calls for her to come. And she comes over to him. And they consummate their adultery. I'm going to ask you, could God have done for David what he did for Abimelech? Did God do for David what he did for Abimelech? He did not. Did God will David and Bathsheba's adultery? The good news is, however you answer that question, you are correct. (laughs) Did God will that adultery? In one sense, no, because God hates adulterers. Okay, he hates adultery. It's clear, and David knew this is wrong. Don't do this. And in another sense, God could have stopped it any step along the way. He could have made sure that Bathsheba was taking her bath at a different time when David was looking. He could have made sure that the answer from her lips was, no, I'm not going, I'm married. It could have been that David lost his heart for this sin right the moment before consummating it. Okay? There was a thousand ways God could have stopped this the way he did for Abimelech. And it doesn't say here how he stopped Abimelech. Did his heart grow faint? Was she, we don't know. I can't imagine that it was an invisible force field and Abimelech's trying to get her and and this force field, something I'm guessing involving human willing was involved in God keeping Abimelech from Sarah. Okay? In God's will of command, that adultery is wicked and God hates it. God does not will for adultery to happen. In another sense, God didn't stop it. Why did God not stop it? Was there something in the universe forcing God's hand on this issue? Or did God freely chose not to intervene? Okay? God freely chose not to intervene in this situation. Okay? So there's nothing outside of God holding his hand. This is God's choice to not intervene. God, in his will of decree, willed for this adultery to happen. He did. 
not in terms of moral permission, but in terms of this is the way the world went. God could have turned everyone's heart, and he chose not to. Okay? David and Bathsheba are both fully responsible for what they did, and yet God chose not to intervene. So in some sense, God is willing this event to happen. And if you fast forward far enough, you'll see that for Christ to be the kind of savior he is, that means several whorish women and several bad men need to be in his family tree. And guess what? Here they are. Okay? Bathsheba is Jesus' grandmother. And that's exactly what we're discussing here. Yeah? You're running into the same... <laughs> your waves are running against the same rocks that the rest of us are. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't get easier, kid. <laughs> because, so God did not restrain David. But who desired to commit adultery in that situation? David. So who deserves to get punished for this? David. He did what was wrong. Okay, so the fact that God does not give us grace doesn't mean that we're no longer responsible for our actions. We're always responsible for our actions. If God restrains our sin like he did for Abimelech, that's more than just getting what we deserve. That's getting mercy. But if God says, no, I'm just going to keep sending out more rope, David can be more like David. Okay? Matt can be more like Matt. Don can be more like Don. And Howard can be more like Howard. By giving us more rope, we're not losing our responsibility. It's just that God has chosen not to hold it back. He's saying, you can, be, you can be more the way you are, and let's see how this turns out for you. Okay? But God's not forcing evil into someone's heart. Okay? And when we, when we read in the Old Testament too, in the Exodus, ten plagues, in five of them it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In the other five it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And I think that's what's happening. Both are true. God keeps giving Pharaoh more rope, Pharaoh's being more Pharaoh-like. And so it's not that God is putting evil in his heart. He's just letting that evil express itself more and more. But it's still Pharaoh doing it. It's Pharaoh's fault. Because Pharaoh is disobeying God. And it's not God's fault if God gives him more room to do it. He's just showing us who we really are when he gives that rope out. Okay? So we're responsible for our actions. If God chooses to give us mercy... Well, that rope quickly comes in and God's holding us back from sinning more than we could. But we're still always responsible for our actions. Does that help? <laughs> yeah. I, I've come to peace. We're not going to tie this all up perfectly, but, but we want to think down the right path at least. Some, Tim and then Don. Amen. That's exactly right. Yeah, when we say, there but for the grace of God go I, we need to really mean it. Kelvin paints a picture of this that I find helpful. Again, maybe you will too. Think of your will, your sinful will, like water pushing against a dam. And there's lots of pressure all the way across this dam, from one end to the other. 
that sin wants to come out everywhere. And God's grace is holding it back like a dam holding back this water. Okay? That sinful desire is from here. The fact that I don't have an opportunity to express it is the grace of God holding it back. And God does that even for unregenerate people. You could add a zero behind Hitler's kill list. You could. Okay? In the grace of God, he did not conquer more of the globe than he did. There was a restraining grace even for the most wicked people. Now, if God says, you know what? Right over here at this specific spot right here, I'm going to open up the dam a little bit. Okay? All that, do, all that God is doing is he is taking away his restraint. But the water that comes out, the sinful action that comes out, the wicked desire that comes out at that spot, isn't God forcing it. It's God giving it an opportunity to show itself. Okay? And so, it's not random when we think about how can evil fit in with God's decree, how can we be responsible for our actions if this is the case. God doesn't just randomly let the water out here or here or randomly. It's not a roll of the dice. God strategically lets a little bit out here for Pharaoh because I've got a plan for Pharaoh. And he lets a little bit here out for David's lust because he wants to tell a story with David. What comes out belongs to us. But the fact that God is no longer restraining it, that is his perfect uh, decree, his will, so to speak. But what comes out over the dam, if he opens it an inch, that belongs to us. We're the water putting pressure on it. The dam is God's restraint. And God is pleased to let it out here and here and here for the purposes of the story that he's telling with history, for the purposes of the story he's telling with his creation. But the sin is always native to our heart. And it's never God planting fresh evil. It's not like Pharaoh sitting on the fence, yeah, you know, I, I could love God, I could hate him, doesn't really matter. And then God says, no, I'm going to fill your heart with hate. Uh-uh. Pharaoh was filled with hate from the moment sperm and egg met. God's restraining it, almost always, and then he lets it out here. Pharaoh's fault, God's decision to let it out here and here. Okay, that's Calvin's picture. For, for my mind, that works. I know word pictures hit differently with different people. And I'm not saying have we solved this QED, like a math equation. But is that picture helpful to understand how the sin is always native to us and yet God can, in his sovereign purposes, let it out at different places strategically. Okay? The evil that he lets out is not random. It's strategic. Does that help? Burn. Well, you don't have to hate going back to the Bible, Vern.
And really, the goal, and that's a great place to move the conversation, because the goal of theological study is not to be known for the brightest, smartest boy around. It's so it comes out of your fingertips. Right? Nothing that happens on your farm or with your kids or on my farm or with my kids or with Howard's business uh, and his kids or little Jane back there, none of it happens. Okay? If, if, we, if what, everything we've discussed isn't true, we're living in a random universe and there is no pastoral comfort in the materialist universe whatsoever. Okay? It's just the cold gears of fate grinding away. No personal involvement from a personal God. Why did this guy get cancer? Well, you know, God lost that arm wrestle, I guess. It's just cold cause and effect. Uh, there's no pastoral comfort in a cause and effect cold universe. Right, The fact that God is personally involved in governing every last detail means if something bad happens, it's not random. Right? We can find comfort in it. Amen. And God did use Corey Ten Boom mightily. Yep. Yep. No, and so the goal of theology is always pastoral application. And this means nothing random has ever happened in your life. Okay? This isn't just the gears of fate in a materialist, closed cause and effect system. And, you know, to use a barn phrase, you just say, well, manure happens. Right? <laughs> Uh, God meant this struggle for you. Why? Because this is the one you need. And that one over there is the one that woman needs. Okay? And this is the one that this family has to work through. But it's not random. It's designed by God. Right? With his permission, with his governance of the world for a specific purpose that we may not live long enough to see. And we have to be okay with that too. We might go into the ground and say, that thing there never made sense to me. It's okay. It might make sense in six or 800 years. And maybe never to our minds. But God is always at work. Okay? And I'll, I'll put one more point here. If, if we're going to have problems with understanding this, how does God's will and my will how does this work? How does concurrence work precisely? And we're, we're going to have some struggles with it no matter which route we go. And I'd rather say this. If you're going to have to pick your problems, okay, would you rather have it with understanding yourself or would you rather have it with understanding God? Okay? If we're going to say, what's true north here? As we start to figure out this problem of concurrence, What's the true north? Do we start with our experience and then try to make sense of God? Or do we say, we're going to start with God. This is his universe. It's his creation. We're going to start with the decree of God. That's the non-negotiable starting point. If I don't understand exactly myself now, 
I'd far rather have that than say, I think I understand myself pretty good, okay? But we're going we're gonna to run into some bumps here. We just will, okay? But we want to go where Scripture says, always. Uh, and I'd rather have people that trust their Bible, even in the hard parts, than people that have it all figured out, but forget 9 or 12 or 55 verses to get there, okay? So if you're living in some confusion on this, just take a deep breath, <laughs> okay okay nothing's in jeopardy the good news is that God is sovereign so you don't have to be (laughs) if you don't get it this is still true God's still governing the universe and he's still going to get you all the way home to heaven okay so just take a deep breath we should probably at least start chapter 10 shouldn't we or should we not should we let this run itself out a little further where are we at? <laughs> what, what about it? It's like Not only is it okay, but the fact that you're asking the same question that Paul's anticipating means you're on the right path. have the right disposition. It's frustrating at times or discouraging, but your disposition is, I want, <laughs> yes, I want every verse of the Bible to say yes and amen to. And you're in good company. And I can personally relate very well to that. I spent, I maybe shared that 
here, certainly in private, I've shared this with Howard. I spent, I don't know what, two years, almost full-time, aside from farming, trying to figure this out and fighting it every step of the way. And finally, in one conversation, it just became so clear. You work through Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 and John 7 and John 10 and John 17 and John 6 and Romans 8 and 9 and 10 and say, okay, uncle, this is what the Word of God says. And if I am committed to the laws of logic, which I am, and if I'm committed to the inerrancy of Scripture, which I am, QED, Reformed Theology, is correct. And I consciously thought to myself, but I don't have to like it. <laughs> okay? And I honestly, I lived that way for at least a year. Yes, I am absolutely convinced this is what the Bible teaches. There is no way around it. The Bible just simply teaches this. And I don't like it because I didn't grow up this way. I'm rejecting my tradition and I love my tradition. And I, it creates all kinds of new problems for me and I don't like it. And then when this moves into pastorally, the first winter we were farming and I had a nervous breakdown and depression. It's like, this is really good. This nervous breakdown isn't just random fate. It's not something I chose. Okay? God picked this for me because Matt was becoming a pride factory. Okay? And this is exactly what Matt needs right now in his life. When he's in his 20s and he started a farm and no one said he could and he's happily married, and he's got three beautiful children, that guy is a pride risk. That guy needs to spend a winter laying on his couch and crying. That's what he needs. So he's going to get it, because I love him. And that pride needs to get out of his heart, and it's going to hurt. Right? Because our idols and our sins always feel comfortable to us, and we always return to them when there's trouble. But Matt needs this really bad. He's going to get it. And suddenly Reformed theology became beautiful to me. Because God was walking me through this season of life. This isn't a mistake. Okay? God wants me to have depression because I must need depression. And I remember telling Tanya on the way out as I was starting to feel normal again. I remember thinking I would not wish that on my worst enemy. Because frankly, that is the closest to the pit of hell I ever want to experience. And I think this is the best thing that's ever happened in my life. And those things are both true. They're both true. And if we go to Romans 9, which is what Howard brought up here, I'll give one more picture that maybe can help conceptualize this somewhat. When we talk about, well, if we're born this way, if we're born sinful, did God make us that way? Well, in one sense, yes, by his decree. But God is not the author of evil. God does not plant evil in people's hearts. So how do we square that? And I think the best answer that the big church has come up with to date is to see sin as a privation or as a marring of something good. And if you think about that, this is actually a very important step, okay? When it's January, and it's minus 25 outside, and we're going to say it's really cold, you're going to stop now. Can you measure cold? Can you measure cold? 
You can't. You can measure the absence of warmth. Okay? Warmth is the thing. Cold is the deprivation of that thing. But you cannot measure cold. And you cannot measure darkness. You can measure light. Okay? So here's the standard. And we can talk about things in terms of deprivation of that standard. But every sin you can think of has something... It's like a parasite that's acting on something good. Okay? Pornography is an overwhelming sin in our culture. And it feeds on something good. And that is man's sex drive. Okay? It's good. That's how we get little people. That's how we build covenant marriage. A man's sex drive is a good thing that God made. Okay? And it has a lawful outlet. Okay? But we mar it. We deprive it of its true substance when we indulge in pornography or adultery. Okay? Psalm 104 says that God gives uh, wine to make the hearts of men glad. It's good. It's good. And what do people do? They have a bit too much. And they start acting stupid and they make terrible decisions. And they ruin their lives. Okay? Food is good. And we have an epidemic of obesity because we don't know when to stop. Okay? Sin feeds on something good like a parasite. It's the deprivation. It's the marring of something good. So in this sense, this isn't Hinduism here. This is Christian theology. In a very real sense, sin is no thing. Okay? And by saying that, I'm not saying that sin doesn't exist. Clearly it does. But sin is not a thing in itself. It's a deprivation or a marring of the good. Okay? So this helps too to see God does not author evil. God does not plant evil in people's hearts. The fall has marred us. It hasn't erased the image of God, but it has marred us. So that what sin ends up being is us turning for wickedness the things that God has put in creation which are good. And I will challenge you to think of a sin that exists that doesn't have its origin in something good. Okay? It does. So here's the standard. Sin mars it. So sin is not a thing. It's not a substance that God puts in your heart. That's not how the decree of God works. Sin is us not living up to the standard. Marring it. Vandalizing something that God has called good. We turn it for evil. So we don't need God to plant evil in our hearts. He just lets that image, that broken mirror continue to be a broken mirror. That's what it is. Or a foggy mirror, however you want to picture this. Keith. Yep. Yep. They cannot create something new.
the true God. Yep. Yeah. And, and again, this is a concept I personally find helpful in understanding this. Sin is no thing. Sin is not a substance. It's failing to live up to what God has called us to live up to. I think, I should leave it here, the kids are coming. I think in the glory of God sermon I mentioned, think of this as the way the moon images the sun. Right? There's no light that emits from the moon. The moon emits nothing. It reflects. Okay? And that's actually a picture of, I think, how sin works when we put ourselves first. Uh, we're, we're treating ourselves as though we emit this and we're just supposed to reflect it. But when we get caught up in ourselves, instead of accurately reflecting the glory of God, we're ruled by the image, we're ruled by the moon, we're ruled by the luna, we become a lunatic. Okay? That's what the origin of that word means. We're ruled by ourselves instead of by the source. That's what sin is. Okay? That's what sin is, is being ruled by the moon instead of by the source. And we turn in on ourselves and then we don't image it properly. Okay? So we're broken mirrors in that sense. And we won't get into Romans 9. I'll just say, in your own private devotions now, then read exactly what Howard mentioned. Read verse 14. The objection there. And then also read the objection in verse 19. Okay? Read those objections. And here's what it means. If those are the same objections you come up with, that means you're understanding Paul's argument well. Okay? If Paul was teaching the autonomy of human free will in Romans 9, and then these questions come to him, he could have just headed it all off the pass. Because you notice, if man's free will is the ultimate cause... Those objections make no sense. And Paul could have just discarded the whole discussion. Said, no, 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 you don't get it. Man's free will is the governing force in the universe. They wouldn't ask those questions. The questions come because Paul is saying God's will is the governing force in the universe. That's why you get questions like why does he still find fault? So if you're asking those questions, it means you're understanding Paul's argument. And Paul doesn't really answer them. Other than to say, who are you, O oh man? And he says, what if God, desiring to show his justice and mercy, God wills for sin, this is the closest we get to an answer, he wills sin in creation for a time so that he can show the perfection of his wrath against sin and he can show the perfection of his mercy in pardoning sinners who don't deserve it. But if you read the Bible and you come up with those same questions, it means you're understanding the argument. And you might not get a better answer than the Romans got. <laughs> and that's okay. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, I want to thank you first and foremost for a body of believers who take your words so seriously that we can discuss these things without clamor, without fighting, without emotion and backbiting. Lord, these are hard things. These are big ideas and we must bend the knee to them regardless of our level of understanding. Lord, you have told us that these things are true and we must receive it from your hand. And yet, Lord, at the same time, we want understanding, and I pray that you would give it through whatever means you are pleased to give it, whether that's through a personal experience, whether it's through a word picture that suddenly clicks, whether it's through a long process of wrestling through this. Lord, and most importantly, I pray that we would not treat this like a game, 
as though this is somehow impersonal philosophy or logic, Lord, but that we would treat this as pastoral life, that this would come out of our fingertips, that we would have confidence that whatever comes our way, you have decreed it for a purpose. Our, our trials are custom built by you, Lord, and they are designed to make us more humble, more reliant on you, and to help get us all the way home. Lord, I pray for each saint in this room. Lord, I thank you that you are committed to getting each one all the way home. And I pray that we would rest in that. I pray that we would uh, accept our trials as personally designed for us, that we would have a, a spirit of humility and a willingness to learn in and through it. Lord, and for the things that we don't understand, I pray that we would lay it at your feet. We don't need to understand in order for you to do your work in us. So Lord, I pray also that the pressure would come off, that we would rest in these truths, and that they would make us more humble. Thank you for this discussion. Lord, whatever that has been said that is confusing or not honoring of you, I pray that you would please take that from our minds. And those things which will drive these truths deeper into our hearts, deeper into our bones, Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would drive that nail all the way in. That we would not only see it, but that we would rejoice in it. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your word that you have not left us blind. And I pray that you'd be with us as we move to corporate worship this morning. Pray that you would be glorified and that you would feed your people. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus Christ. And amen.